This morning, um, you know, we, we follow New Life Downtown. We're part of New Life Church as a whole. And so whenever we're up, at, we're doing a series uh, at the main campus. We follow the same series. We've been in the series in the book of Acts. Up north, there's a guest speaker this morning. And so we have the, 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 um, the luxury of doing a, an open message. And so one of my good friends this morning, Dr. Stephen Todd, is going to come and speak to us. But before he does, I just want to say a few words about him. Um, Stephen... Uh, was saved kind of in the Jesus movement out in California, am I right? Calvary Chapel days, you know, so I think there's somewhere some hidden photos of Stephen with long hair and, a, and an, a, oh, <laughs> yeah, his right. mic's Oops. already on. Oh, mic's already on, sorry about okay. that. We can have a conversation right here. Um, and uh, <laughs> that's awesome. Um, so, <laughs> uh, and, and then later went on to serve in, uh, in a pastoral role at Calvary Chapel and then vineyard movements and came out to Colorado to help um, with a vineyard church up in Denver, and then started a, a vineyard church here in town, and pastored for many, many years, uh, earned his master's degree at Fuller Theological Seminary, so he's the reason I'm there right now, um, and, and, and then went on and earned his doctorate in missiology. He spent over a decade traveling, he and his wife Linda, to Africa, particularly to Rwanda, and uh, training pastors in refugee camp areas and things like that. And so over the last couple of years, Stephen and I have, have become uh, good friends and and he's been a real source of encouragement to me. You remember a few weeks ago, I talked about one of the ways how God gives us strength is through community. And I defined community as people who are in different stages of life than you are. So they can give you wisdom in that. Stephen has definitely been that for me. He, he's been an encouragement and a, and a good voice to me. And so this morning he wants to come. And, oh, he's gonna, I've asked him to come and talk to us. And he's going to talk to us a little bit about what it means to come to the table of the Lord and the Eucharist and all of that. So please welcome Dr. Stephen Tuck. Oh, thank you, Glenn. Glenn and I have known each other for at least a decade because Glenn, of course, was one of the uh, original members of the Desperation Band, and our son Eric was also in the Desperation Band from the beginnings. And at some point, he was, at one point, he was just one of those musician rock and roll guys that my son hung around with, and then something happened, and, and he grew, and, and not just his pastoral leadership and ability, but just in his orientation of the gifts and the callings in his life, and they were suddenly lining up a lot more with my journey as well, and we became friends, even though maybe separated by a few decades in age, and I guess it, some, of this, some of this odd stuff is a little bit my fault, so my apologies. However, as much as maybe I've been able to help Glenn in encouraging him in his theological studies, Glenn has been a tremendous help to me as I'm trying to get a little bit less behind the curve in the whole area of technology. And so I am, for the first time in my life, preaching from an iPad. <laughs> and if it goes south, I do have a backup set of my notes on paper. So I'm hoping that that won't be necessary, but we will see. So uh, it just seems odd, and I don't have my leather Bible in my hand. I don't know. We'll, we'll see how that works. I tell people that Glenn is, in fact, my Twitter tutor. So... <laughs> I have a question for you. How many of you have visited Europe? Okay, now keeping your hands up. For the rest of you, how many of you have at least seen Europe on a movie or a television show? Okay, then everybody, everybody here has had some exposure to the continent of Europe. So I want your holy imagination to take place, uh, or to take root for just a moment. And imagine that you're in a little village somewhere in Europe. It could be Italy, perhaps, uh, maybe southern Germany, and you're in a very cold stone church building, 
high walls. It might not even be that big, but cavernous in its design, cold and damp, illuminated only by candles, and it's crowded, and there's children, and there's adults, and there's a lot of noise, and kids crying and screaming and rustling as people come in and out, and it bounces off the walls. And meanwhile, at the front, there's a priest in his vestments, and he's going through the the ritual, and at the climax of the service, bouncing off the walls, the noise of the priest's voice trying to be heard over the rustle of the people, he holds up this piece of bread and he says, in a language that they don't even understand, hoc es corpus meum, and these bells ring. And week after week becomes month after month, becomes year after year, this same ritual goes on and perhaps in the last third or even half of the auditorium or the the sanctuary, By the time those words bounce off the wall, what the people begin to hear is hocus pocus. And something magical happens. You probably didn't know. See, we even have the crying baby. Now we just need the bouncing. (laughs) Thank you. That was great. That, That just set it all up for me. As years passed, the sacrament of the Eucharist, and by the way, Some of you might have even wondered, uh, why do we call it the Eucharist? Isn't it just communion? Isn't it just the Lord's Supper? Glenn and I were joking about what we should call this sermon, and I suggested maybe, are we becoming Catholics? Heck no. Uh, But I've gotten those questions. Why do we call it that? Well, if you look in the original language of the New Testament, which is Greek, you remember that Jesus said, it says, Jesus gave thanks and he broke the bread. Well, the word for give thanks is simply the word Eucharisto. And so from the earliest times of the church, the, the meal that we call the Lord's Supper became known as the Eucharist. She's really unhappy with my sermon. Uh, maybe she was a Catholic. I'm, I'm sorry. I, you know, no offense intended. As Protestants, we have always been very wary of adding these kinds of mysterious, mystical experiences and symbols to our worship. We've taken rather a lot of pride, in fact, of stripping our worship services from any of these things that would look or seem to be Roman Catholic. Am I right? Do I get an amen from the crowd? You see, Catholics wouldn't shout amen, and you would. So today, I want to take a look at the scripture... And I also want to take us through a very brief and hopefully engaging, slightly entertaining and not overly boring look at a couple of quick points in church history as well as theology so that we can understand why we're doing this week after week after week. Because I have to tell you, it's labor intensive. A lot of people have to come early and set it up. It's not convenient. Have you noticed we've had this problem already in six weeks of the flow? It kind of jams up right here. By the way, the reason we have the two is that when you're coming over here, I want to I might as well give you a quick instruction. If this one's full, jump right over to this one. Okay? This crowd. Because this is the largest group. This group, you go to the corner. Okay? So... So this group, you have two tables, this table and that table. And if, you, if don't just stand in line patiently waiting while that one's available. Just go straight over there, okay? So we're, we're learning these things, right, Glenn? We're kind of working through them. Well, it's a lot of hassle. So why would we do it every week 
week after week after week. Well, the words of institution, that's what we call them, those words that Jesus said when he blessed the bread and the wine, it's almost identical in the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the same words appear even from the, the, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. So I'd like us just to look at Matthew's version, if we can have that on the, the screen. Matthew says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke and gave it to his disciples and said, Take eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink all of it, or drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And Paul has almost the same words, and then after those words of institution, Paul adds these words. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, meaning until he comes again. Now, God created us, in the words of Paul in 1 Thessalonians, he created us spirit, soul, and body. Am I right? Usually we reverse it. We say body, soul, and spirit, but the scripture actually says spirit, soul, and body. Well, our Old Testament reading had Glenn cut and pasted it correctly, would have been Joshua 4, the one you saw on the screen, not the one that our dear brother was reading correctly, I might add. Uh, He was correctly reading what Glenn had pasted. Would have told us the story. (laughs) See, I find that incredibly uh, freeing for a guy like me, you know, that (laughs) Mr. Techno-Hipster here actually makes occasional mistakes too, you know. It really frees me a lot, Okay. So, as I'm trying to go, my gosh, it keeps, see, it keeps scooting down. I don't know why. So, I'm right back to the, I'm thanking Glenn for asking me and welcoming you again. It's like, I've got to keep going up here. I don't know. I think paper works better for me. But the Old Testament reading was Joshua and the people of Israel, after they had crossed over the Jordan, and it was dry ground, and they crossed over into Canaan, the promised land, and God tells them to go down before the waters cover it again, go to the bottom of the river and find some of those large, smooth river rocks, you know, the kind that are smooth because the water's been going over them for, for generations, maybe centuries, and one for each of the 12 tribes, these, the, we imagine they were very large because the implication is one for each tribe, you guys go in and haul this out. So they're hauling out these big, round, smooth stones and stacking them up for the purpose that in generations to come, people will see, or children particularly, will walk by and they will see those stones and say, what's the meaning of this? And they can retell the story time and time again of God's faithfulness. You see, God cares about our physicality. And the first, I'm going to have kind of four talking points. And the first one is God invading human space. Our gospel reading was John 1 verse 14, where it says, Jesus, the word, became flesh and lived among us. In the Nicene Creed, we said we believe that he was, that Mary was, was impregnated by the power of the Holy Spirit and incarnated, was the word used, Jesus became human flesh. 
You've heard of the incarnation? And a lot of you don't fully understand. Incarnation means Jesus coming in the flesh, and it's not hard to remember. Do we have any fans of Mexican food here? Okay. If you have chili con carne, it means chili without meat. Con, with. Isn't con without? With. I, uh, you guys look Hispanic. I'll trust you. Okay. I, I took Spanish for three years in high school, or it didn't do any good. Um, carne means flesh. Incarne means in flesh. Okay. Jesus didn't appear to be a man. Jesus became fully man for us. That's not hard to understand. But you see, it goes beyond that. Humans were created with a need for physical memorials and for physical things that connected to their spirit. I had the uh, experience, I don't know if I'd call it an honor, it was a tragedy, of course, but I was in Africa on 9-11, and... My plane from Johannesburg was the first, first plane allowed back from an international destination back into the United States uh, on the Sunday night after the attack, and we flew into JFK. And the only other flight I could get out, our dear friend met me there, it was just a few days after the attack, and I was able to get across town to LaGuardia, where the only flight leaving that day took us to St. Louis, and, and we went right over midtown Manhattan. There were only 10 of us on, an, on a 757. And I, we saw the plumes of smoke. We saw it. And then about two months later, I was back through New York on my way to Africa, seeing the same friend because he had been actually in downtown uh, Manhattan and had been terribly impacted by it and was having a real tough time. And his wife had called me and asked if I could come through New York. And he and I walked. I, 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 we just walked and walked and walked. But we saw shortly after they had pulled it out and erected it, that twisted steel in the shape of the cross. And I've been right there about three times before it was taken down. And I have to tell you, I was moved immensely. A police officer here in Colorado Springs was killed just maybe a month or so ago. And over on Barnes Road, or Austin Bluffs, I should say, there is still a little memorial where he was killed. We see those kinds of memorials along the road all the time, don't we? I have not been to my father's grave in quite a while. He's buried in, in Los Angeles, California. But when I have gone to my father's grave, without even thinking, one of the first things I find myself doing is trimming the weeds that might have grown around his tombstone. Now, you don't think that odd because you would do the same exact thing, am I right? Human beings have this, this predilection, this tendency that we, we, we need physical memorials Beyond just knowing something, we have to have some kind of physical testimony to it. We do that in the positive way when it comes to um, celebrations, and birthdays, and, and weddings, and, and those kinds of things, Christmas. In fact, people get a little testy if you want to tweak some of those traditions. When, two, when a couple get married, one of the first challenges is Christmas traditions. Well, we can't do it on Christmas Eve because it's supposed to be Christmas morning. No, you can't have, you got to have a real tree, not an artificial tree. No, you got to have, the gravy has to be made with cornstarch, not flour. No, it has to be made with flour, not cornstarch. Because it won't be Christmas if we don't have this memorial or this, this physicality that reminds me of something very dear to my heart. And every one of us can relate to that. Except when it comes to our spirituality. 
because, and as I'll share in a couple of minutes, we are the product of well-intentioned, overreactionary reformers in the Renaissance period who were scared to death of seeing us go on the slippery slope back to medieval superstitious Catholicism. Okay? And we have a fine tradition of Gnosticism in the American church. And that's what we're going to talk about in just a moment. Because you see, even in the early church, one of the, the, probably the first heresy that developed out of the early church was called Docetism. And Docetism, it comes from a a Greek word rather, that means to appear as. And what, what it said was that Jesus wasn't really a man, a human being. Jesus just appeared to be a man. So when Jesus said to the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, I'm hungry or I'm thirsty, give me some water, please. It was just a rhetorical comment because God can't get thirsty. And the early church condemned this as heresy, but from Docetism came a philosophical approach that we call Gnosticism. And this is what we we would say today denies sacred space. You see, Gnosticism basically said spirituality is, impo- is everything and physicality is nothing at all. It just matters that you, that you believe the right things and this, this human body, matter, is, is insignificant and, and has nothing to do with our spiritual life. In fact, the New Testament reading out of 1 John said, this is how you test the spirits. Do they acknowledge that Jesus has come incarnate in the flesh? That's not a magical incantation. Incantation. That's not some kind of a litmus test. We used to think in the Jesus movement days that if we thought somebody was demon-possessed, we would just try to get them to say, Jesus has come in the flesh. Because if they could say that, clearly they weren't demon-possessed. Because 1 John 4 said, if they can confess that Jesus has come in the flesh, you know, and we missed it completely. That's not the point of that passage. The point of the passage is saying this, that, the, that, that God's truth And the true message of the gospel is that God came in the form of Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. And if we deny the human side, the physicality of Jesus, we are denying a major portion of the gospel itself. Because if he did not become man, then he could not have suffered for the punishment of man's sin if he just appeared to be a man for the moment. Now, you're saying... So what? I didn't come to church for a theology lesson. Well, the good news is, for the next thousand years after the early church, they embraced the physicality of Jesus. They embraced the physical and the spiritual. But they embraced it, at best, misunderstood, at worst, perverted it to where there became a medieval superstition in the church that treated the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper in particular, as if they were magic. And so we come to that, that cold, dark little church where the priest's Latin words, hocus corpus, is being heard as hocus pocus. And the bells are ringing. And they believe it literally becomes the actual body and blood of Jesus. To the point where if it was spilt, they would have to do all kinds of rituals uh, you know, and, and those kinds of things. Well, then comes the Reformation. Now, I will not take but a moment. I would love to take you guys through a, a history of the Reformation because I love that period of time. 
Uh, I would love to tell you all about Martin Luther and, and what happened. Uh, it's an exciting and wonderful story. Linda's uh, family roots are from Germany. Her mother's from there. And we, this last year, we were able to retrace some of Luther's steps uh, and go uh, and be the, in those places, which was really a lot of fun for me. It was kind of one of my bucket list items just to, to be there and to see those things. But Martin Luther shook the world at that time in Germany. You know, he was a, a monk. He was a doctor of theology. Had this absolute revelation that, that it's by grace we are saved through faith and not of works and all of that. And, and it just rocked everything. And, of course, that began what we know as the Protestant Reformation. But while Luther was involved up in Germany, the, the cataclysmic, or, or I should say the tectonic, shaking that was going on in the religious world went down into Switzerland, and particularly into Zurich, Switzerland. And you did not, most of you have never heard of Huldrych Zwingli, have you? How many have heard of Huldrych Zwingli? Fourteen of us, okay. You guys are paying attention during uh, medieval church history classes, or I guess it would be Reformation and beyond. Huldrych Zwingli was a guy, he, he was the, the pastor who got the, the, kind of was passed the baton, we could, one could say by the Holy Spirit, to take the Reformation into Switzerland. But Zwingli went a little further than Luther did. You see, Zwingli just really didn't like Catholics. And he didn't like the Catholic Church the way it had become so superstitious and, 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 and what have you. And so I call this babies in bathwater because he threw out the baby with the proverbial bathwater. You see, Zwingli said, the Roman heresies are so bad and so evil, we cannot even let our parishioners sing and have public worship because in singing, they might sing something wrong and it might make them get superstitious and it might make them go back to Catholicism. So, Church was re- reading a psalm back and forth, praying, Zwingli praying, and Zwingli preaching for a couple of hours. And that was it. No music, no artwork, no, uh, nothing of any kind of beauty, because all of that could be engraven images and causing us to go worship Mary or the saints or something like that. And so Zwingli's influence spread up to the Reformation as it was taking place in Holland. And you're saying, Stephen, I'm not catching how this affects us. Well, these folks, they, they call them iconoclasts because I, you know what icons are, religious artwork? Iconoclasm is being opposed to religious art. Okay? These are the guys who eventually chopped the heads off of religious statues in, in uh, Catholic churches. Okay? These are the guys who got rid of all that stuff. And that influence got up to Holland to the reformers there. And there were British reformers who left England because they, they were suffering some persecution from the church over there. And they arrived in Holland. They were influenced by that. And they decided to come to this new world they'd heard about, and we call them pilgrims. And they arrived in Massachusetts, and once they started churches, we called them Puritans. And they were great people, and they loved God, and they, they had great devotional lives. But I'll tell you one thing they did not do. They did not look like Catholics. And they did not have artwork. And they did not want any of that hocus-pocus, superstitious stuff. And in fact, Zwingli at one point said, not only does the bread and wine not turn into the body and blood of Jesus Christ, 
But the presence of the Lord is not even in the meal. In fact, it is only a meal of memory. It's basically a toast to God. You know, let's raise our glasses. Hey, to you, God. You know, that's what it is. It's a photo album. Oh, I remember when he did that. Oh, how, oh yeah, oh yeah, the cross. That's it. We don't want anything like that. There's a kind of an interesting story. About 20 years after all this had happened, Luther had heard about Zwingli and all that's going on in Zurich. So all of the lead guys, the Reformation wasn't a real organized thing. It was just kind of this grassroots movement. So in southern Germany, in a, in a place called Marburg Castle, they had a big meeting of all of the, the big guys in the Reformation. And Luther was at one end of the table, or at least according to all the old paintings that we see, and Zwingli was at the other, and they had 15 points of doctrine, things like uh, sola scriptura, the scriptures alone, sola fide, faith alone, uh, you know, grace alone, sola gratia, that, that were saved only by faith in the Lord Jesus and nothing else and no works and, and, you know, and all those things. They agreed on 14 points, and they got to this one 15th point. And the 15th point was that while the bread and the wine do not change and, and still remain bread and wine, or in our case, bread and grape juice, while they do not change, the real presence of the Lord is in, with, and under this event. Because the Lord chooses to use the physicality of our lives, things like bread and, and, and something to drink, He uses that to be an opportunity for His power and His presence and His grace to flow. And Zwingli said, nope, not signing off on that one. It is only a meal of memory. And Luther, who was very versed in Latin, it was at the other end of the table, apparently had his Latin Bible open, and according to legend, as Zwingli was giving his case, Luther started saying, hoc es corpus, which is the words of Jesus, this is my body, ma'am, hoc es corpus, ma'am, hoc es corpus, and he started pounding it so loud, he shouted out Zwingli, and the meeting was over. So it wasn't really a success. Now we fast forward today. Where did my... See, I couldn't even find my iPad. I'm not sure about this. Just not sure. Okay. So, in a way, Zwingli's influence goes to Holland. The pilgrims catch it. They come to Massachusetts. They become Puritans. They establish churches. They experience the Great Awakening. They become us evangelicals to this day. And most of us are still scared to death of being a superstitious medieval Catholic. So, the fourth point, rediscovering mystery and presence at the table. God took two things that are the most common human activities, bathing and eating and drinking, and uses those two things, baptism and the Eucharist, to be avenues whereby his grace can enter into the routine of human life. Isn't that remarkable? His grace, his power, his presence wants to come into our lives even at the most routine, regular, daily level. And he gave us these wonderful gifts to do it. But the evangelical church and the church, and I actually grew up in faith, and I knew the Lord as a child, but I also grew up in a liturgical church that for a while I just really turned my back on. I grew up in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Anybody else Missouri Synod? We were the true, really, all right. We were the real Lutherans, weren't we? 
And they're shaking their head because we were. I went to Lutheran parochial school, okay? And that's why I know so much about Martin Luther because we learned a lot about Martin, let me tell you. You know what happened as a result of the Swiss Reformation? Church furniture started getting rearranged. You see, from the earliest excavations that we have found in churches dating back to 150-200 A.D., the, the sanctuary was very simple, but you know what was at the center? A table for the common meal, for the Eucharist. But you know what happened in the Swiss Reformation and all of that? You know what became central? The pulpit. Now, of course, in most of our evangelical churches, what is central is the drum kit, but... Uh, that's the focus of worship, the focal practice, you know, <laughs> is, is the drummer, and everybody looks up to him, and several drummers are going, yeah. We are afraid of sacraments, and I should make this comment, why in the world is Pastor Glenn calling them sacraments? I thought they were ordinances of the church. That's the other thing that changed. See, the word sacrament comes from the Latin word sacramentum, and it was the oath that a Roman soldier would take to swear even his life to allegiance of Caesar. Not unlike the military today take an oath to the United States and to obey the commander-in-chief, the president of the United States. Like a police officer would take an oath. And in the Roman days, rather than a badge or a uniform, they were also given a, a bronze or brass um, kind of a bracelet on their hand that represented that oath. You see, it was a physical reminder, but not just a reminder. This physical reminder gave that Roman soldier the authority to take somebody into custody or to arrest them in the same way that an American police officer with that badge actually has the authority to, to take a life if necessary. And they use that word sacramentum to describe these things, baptism and the Eucharist. Because while they are physical symbols, there's so much more, and the power and authority and presence of the Lord is in, with, and under this meal. But you know what we evangelicals did? Jesus said, do this often in remembrance of me. We did it as seldom as possible. And some of you grew up in churches that had, do this in remembrance of me, carved in wood on the, on the uh, remember? But you hardly did remember him. Maybe once a quarter on Sunday night, some churches twice a year. And in that, uh, the recent leadership conference had a new life at the main campus. There was that interview with Eugene Peterson. And I love when Daniel Grothy, who was part with Pastor Brady doing the interview, when uh, I love how Daniel said, much of the church has had quarterly remembrance of him. That's all we do. But then, how many of you have been in the, 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 the non-denom, evangelical, charismatic world in the last few years? And we love Christian television, don't we? Can I get an amen? We don't want to get Catholic, so we don't have sacraments, but we make up our own. Because if you'll give your $1,000 seed faith, we'll send you a, a rock that's been soaked in holy oil that we got from the Holy Land itself. A young man told me recently that a relative was so excited because they'd gone to Israel and they brought him and his new wife as a wedding present, mud from the Jordan River. And I said, what is it now? He said, well, it's not mud anymore. It kind of just looks like dirt because the water evaporated. Uh, so, and they, it's like it's holy. This mud is holy. 
That sounds like a sacrament, except that's not one of them that's in the Bible. You see, we make up our own because we're so scared of the ones that God gave us. But the reality is, and I'm closing now, the last scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, Paul says this. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not, and that word participation is the Greek word koinonia, fellowship, communion, participation. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ, the bread which we break? Is it not an actual koinonia with the body of Christ? You see, we always, and I hear people say this, they say, we don't need theology, we, don't, we just need Jesus. Why can't we make it simple? Why can't we just have Jesus? There is nothing more Jesus-focused, or we would say in theology, Christocentric, than ending every service with Jesus. Because the cup that we bless, the bread which we break, it's a participation with Jesus himself. You see, the wonderful thing about being Jesus-focused in this wonderful blessing we call the Eucharist is it doesn't matter how good Abby or Nico or the worship team are, and they're good, but if they have a bad day, it doesn't matter. I love hearing Glenn preach, but once in a while, you know, he dribbles it to the second baseman and doesn't hit it out of the park. usually hits it out of the park, but there have been an occasional grounder, and... Hey, I know that I'm in the infield fly rule right now, so I'm aware of that. This one isn't, you know, this one isn't even the warning track. The baseball analogy, that's, that's me. You see, it doesn't matter how good the sermon is. It doesn't matter how good the worship is. It doesn't matter how good anything is because we get to meet Jesus. Because we get to end with Jesus. Because we get to participate with each other and actually commune, participate, partake with the presence of Jesus. And I'd like to just close with this comment. I was in a refugee camp. It's actually not Rwanda, Glenn, but that's, that's minor. It's, in, it's the Congolese that, I, that we work with predominantly. Uh, and I've, for 11 years in a row, I went to this refugee camp every year. We saw hundreds and hundreds of churches planted in it. But I will never forget my first time breaking bread with these guys. These are people who have encountered untold horror in their lives and, and left, saw their families slaughtered and, and raced out of these villages in northern Congo with just the clothes on their back. They were put in these UN refugee camps. And now God's moving in grace and, and, and mercy among them. They are planting churches. We're talking 65,000 people in one refugee camp. And these pastors were gathered and we were worshiping together. And I, I asked one of them, I said, is there any possible way we could take communion? They get one UN ration a day and they try to grow some things. I don't even know how this will work. But they said, we can do that. And so using some of the UN rations, they pulled them aside and they baked bread. And they went to the UN dispensary and they got hundreds of empty UN medication little cups and tore the little uh, lids off and we got a big bowl and we rinsed them all out and I don't know if the water was clean but you know we took our chances and all they could find from the UN offices was concentrated and the brand was Kimi Cola C-H-E-M-I as in chemical Kimi Cola black currant juice concentrate 
and we mixed it with water, and we filled these little UN medicine cups, and we took the bread that had been taken, made from the UN rations, and we prayed, and we broke bread, and I cried my eyes out because I was experiencing Jesus with my brothers in such a, a primitive way, but I thought, this is how the church comes together and as one experiences the life and the presence of Jesus. It's not just a good sermon. It's not just a good worship experience. It's the physicality of our faith and connecting with each other and with that lifeline that is the presence of Jesus. And so with that, I would ask Pastor Glenn to come back up and welcome us today to come and to not be afraid of any hocus-pocus but to come and experience the real presence of the Lord in this wonderful meal of remembrance. Amen. Thank you, Stephen.